Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and let's go back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, our text this morning, the title of the message, A Different Sort of Offering. We were last in the Gospel of Luke way back in May earlier this year, and God willing, we're going to conclude all of the Gospel of Luke this coming May. Although we begin a new chapter in Luke, chapter 21, the truth is that we're right in the middle of a series of lessons that Jesus was teaching in his earthly ministry concerning the corruption that had happened in the old covenant that God had given to Israel. And the original autographs of the New Testament, as you know, did not contain chapters and verses. So it's sort of an unfortunate place to stop, but it's where we needed to stop um, at the time. And so remember that the setting is the last week of Jesus' life. He had traveled to Jerusalem with his inner circle of disciples and they entered the eastern gate of the city to a hero's welcome. He was riding the foal of a donkey. They were laying branches down before him, singing Hosanna to his name. And so he goes to the temple and he drives out the money changers who had made this house of prayer for all nations, a den of robbers. And for the next several days leading up to the crucifixion, he would go back again and again to the temple to teach and to observe. But even as he observed, he was under observation from his enemies, referred here in the Gospel of Luke as the scribes and Pharisees. And they were sending wave after wave of questioners and questions to Jesus to try to catch him in some mistake or some sin that they could accuse him of. And of course, time after time, they failed. Let me give you a few examples of their technique. At first, they said, by what authority do you do these things? I, I, Sure, that was very soon after he chased the money changers out. It cost many of them a lot of money because they had an interest in uh, those services. And so he said, what, what gives you the right? And Jesus would not answer that question. Instead, he asked them a question. He says, I'll ask you a question. John the Baptist, whose power did he operate under? Of course, they were afraid of the people. They knew John was a martyr and that the people revered John the Baptist. And so they turned and walked away. And then they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They thought, uh, we'll catch him on the horns of a dilemma. If he says anything against Caesar, the Romans will arrest him as an insurrectionist. And if he praises Caesar, then the Jewish people will turn on him. And Jesus took that coin and he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God's the things who are God's. And then they tried one more time. Remember, they asked him this hypothetical question which was really ridiculous. Uh, they made up a story about a woman who got married and her husband died. And under the uh, Leverett marriage system, it was the next brother in line was required to marry her to take care of her. And he did, and he died. And only went until she had married and buried seven husbands. And their question was, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus uh, saw their heart and told them how foolish that was because heaven is fundamentally different than here. Our relationships in heaven are different. He says there's no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. So they failed to understand God's word. He knew their wicked hearts. He wouldn't play their games. And so he uses this opportunity to teach the people 
who were being misled by their leaders. And the summary of his warnings to the people is found in verse 45 and following in chapter 20. Cast your eyes up there. It says, and while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses, keep that in mind, and for appearances sake offer long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. It's a repeat of what we've heard throughout his ministry. Jesus told his disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't be like them. Observe them as a negative example and do the opposite. Now that context is where we find this very familiar passage concerning the widow and her offering. So let's read our text. Luke 21, 1 through 9. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things, which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. And they questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, the time is near, do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified for these things must take place, but the end does not follow immediately. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of this, his word. Now, the first thing that we notice in verse one and two is what Jesus saw. He says he looked up. Well, that implies he was looking down, I think probably in disgust. Um, he was thinking, I'm sure, about what lied ahead of him in just a few hours, and that was the cross. But in his uh, thoughtfulness, he hears something and he looks up and what does he see? He saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and he saw a poor woman putting in two small copper coins. Now, secular history tells us that this would have been uh, at the court of women. It was called the court of women in the temple because if you were a woman, that's as far as you could go. And so outside the court of women, they had placed 13 receptacles, which were shaped like trumpets. And each of the 13 receptacles had a different sign upon it and the offerings that were placed in these 13 receptacles went to support different causes. And so the people would come and they would put into the cause that was upon their heart. And the rich, many of them scribes and Pharisees, would make a great show of giving of these alms. And so Jesus notes a contrast. First thing he looked up and he saw the rich. Now this is a relative, a relative term, of course. We've been studying on Wednesday night here, how to cultivate a thankful heart. And last Wednesday night, I had the opportunity to speak on uh, the idea of contentment. And we talked about stewardship and we talked about wealth and poverty and what the book of Proverbs say about wealth and poverty. And many people misunderstand the scripture to teach that wealth or assets are inherently sinful. And I pointed out through my study that I could find nowhere in the Bible that anyone is ever asked to repent of the sin of being wealthy or having assets. 
Instead, what we see many times is a call for people to repent of trusting in their assets or their wealth as opposed to trusting God. There were many godly yet wealthy people in the Old Testament, Abraham, Job, Joseph, and that wealth was used to glorify God. And so it's not a sin to be rich. It is sinful to depend on riches. It is sinful to abuse the less fortunate to acquire those riches. And that is a sin that is rebuked time and time in the scripture. It is also a sin, I take it from Jesus' teaching, to make a great show even out of giving. Let's look back at Matthew chapter six very quickly. Turn back a number of pages in your Bible and you'll come to Matthew chapter six and Jesus gives some great teaching on giving and generosity particularly the giving of alms, that is uh, money to go to causes and to the poor. And in Matthew chapter six, we read this. Jesus speaking says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your father who is in heaven. So that is if you do a good deed, and he's not saying it's not a good deed. He's saying if you do a good deed, you help someone, whether it's financially or otherwise, and your motive for doing it, so people will say what a great person you are, that's your reward. When someone says, wow, that's a great person, that's your reward. You won't get any in heaven. Verse two, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, you have their, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to the father who's in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So here's the proper way to give. It's not making a show of it. It's not throwing metal coins into the receptacle slowly so that everyone can hear how generous you are. It's doing it quietly and as anonymously as possible. So that's what Jesus noticed, this contrast in the way that these two people were giving, a rich person, and then the second is a poor widow. Now this word, this adjective poor is uh, extreme. This is the, the worst sort of poverty. She was um, the poorest of the poor. Now, we don't know much about this lady. Yeah, that has not stopped a lot of preachers over the years preaching long sermons about her. Um, it, she seems to be commended here and in the other gospels where her name is mentioned. She's certainly not rebuked for giving the way she, she gave. Jesus says that she's given more than the others. But I think we have to be careful here because he's just making a statement of fact that she gave out of her poverty, all that she had to live on. The others were just giving a little token to God. Uh, it was no sacrifice to them. They, they gave larger amounts, but they had much more left behind. Now, she was, I think, certainly a victim of a corrupt system, a system that had put laws and regulations, and, and really it was a system of legalism that the way you please God is by keeping all of these laws, including exactly how much you were supposed to give it at each time of the year. And so it had taken the joy out of worship. And this is exactly what Jesus talked about as it dealt with the Sabbath. There is a law in the Ten Commandments about the Sabbath. 
It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now that's pretty simple law. But to that law, the scribes and Pharisees had added all sorts of minutia, regulations, how far you could do this or that, how long you could do this or that. Uh, one law even said you couldn't even eat a chicken's egg that was laid on the Sabbath because the hen had to do some labor. And so the, the Sabbath had become a burden rather than a blessing to the people. And, and that had permeated throughout the entire system until Jesus was sickened by it. And so here is this woman who life had already beaten down and she'd lost a husband and, and it was hard in those days, there was not the, the social safety net as we know it today. And so life was difficult. And yet here she is faithfully coming, not only worshiping, not only giving, but giving her last two pennies. Now, I think we should pause right here and talk a little bit about widows. What does the Bible say about widows? Well, Exodus chapter 22 says that uh, no one is to mistreat widows. Apparently, that's exactly what some of these scribes and Pharisees were doing. Remember back in verse 47, chapter 20, he says, they're devouring widows' houses. Now, he doesn't elucidate on that, but I take it from that. They are um, swindling women out of what little inheritance they had from their husband. Psalm 68 says that God is the protector of widows. 1 Timothy chapter 5 in the New Testament says the church is to honor widows who are worthy of honor and who have served faithfully. And part of that is helping to take care of them financially if she lacks relatives to do it. But I think the summary of all the Bible says about widows is James chapter one, verse 27, when James writes, pure and undefiled religion before God is this, to visit orphans and widows and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so what Jesus saw was a contrast between the rich who were doing what they were doing to draw attention to themselves, even though they were giving larger amounts, and a poor widow who was devoted to the Lord who gave all she had to live on in a society that made it very difficult to be a widow woman. So that's what Jesus saw. The second thing is what Jesus valued. Look at verse 3. And he said, Truly I say to you, the poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put all that she had to live on. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said. So what are the people valuing? <laughs> They're valuing the stonework in the temple and the gifts that people have given. And Jesus ignores the architecture. Jesus ignores the opulence of the temple and his focus is upon this poor woman. So what does that tell me? It tells me that Jesus values people more than possessions. That's the number one thing on the list that my wife and I wrote out years ago if we wanted to teach our children before they left home. Number one on the list is to love people and use things. But so many people get it just backwards. They love things and they use people to acquire those things. And Jesus is not like that. He loved the people more than possessions. Secondly, Jesus values devotion from the heart rather than public displays of wealth. The Old Testament tells us that, that man judges on outward appearances, but God judges the heart. He said of this woman that she has given more than all of them. I'm sure that confused those disciples who seemed to always think in very literal terms. 
Jesus was speaking on a higher level. Now, Jesus could do simple math. After all, he created the universe with all of its precision. He knew that those two copper coins was the smallest unit of measurement that you were even allowed to give in the temple. Certainly didn't compare with some of these grand gifts that surrounded them in the temple. But he's saying in the eyes of God, it's more valuable because he values devotion from the heart rather than outward displays of wealth. The third thing we see about what Jesus values is he values sacrifice rather than show. That's all these folks were doing. They were putting on a show. Remember back in Matthew 6, it says they were sounding a trumpet. Now, I want to think that's hyperbole. I want to think that's an exaggeration, but apparently some of them actually were doing this. They were hiring musicians to go before them and sound a trumpet so that everyone would be called to attention when I'm about to do something in my eyes, which is noteworthy. Well, this certainly shows us this was a broken system, but it was the only system that this woman had. She was taught from her youth to, to give to the Lord and, and where we meet with the Lord, she was taught was at the temple. I went back this week and read first and second Chronicles about how it was in David's heart to build a temple for the Lord. He wasn't allowed to because he was a bloody man, but God allowed him to collect the materials and raise the funds and they raised so much money, people gave so generously that it was too much. And David was, was overwhelmed that he would even get the privilege of doing that. But it was left to his son Solomon who ultimately built the temple. And it was grand and gorgeous and, of course, uh, was dedicated unto the Lord. And, of course, that temple uh, was destroyed. It was rebuilt and... Uh, it was refinished later by Herod, and, and it was grand and glorious, even in the days of Jesus. But Jesus was not impressed with any of that. He values sacrifice more than show. So that's what Jesus saw. That's what Jesus valued. Thirdly, we see what Jesus knew. Verse 5, and while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you're looking at, the day will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. All of this would soon come to an end. These things refers to beautiful stonework and what's called the consecrated gifts. We're told that some of these single stones that was used to build the temple were 60 feet by 20 feet. That's 1,200 square feet. That's larger than some homes one stone. And it was impressive. And they fit together with such great precision and beautiful marble work all over, Many, uh, much of it inlaid with gold leaf. And it, it was a sight to behold. People came from all over wor the world to uh, marvel at this temple. And inside the temple, people had given votive gifts to be put on display. Many of the wealthy and, and the politicians would give gifts. For example, Herod had given um, sort of a sculpture that was made to look like grapes and vines made out of pure gold. It was huge. Ptolemy was one of the leaders that had given consecrated gifts. And these gifts were, were all over the place. Everywhere you looked, there was this great, incredible treasure, which, by the way, was all stolen some years later and was a great target for thieves. 
But Jesus predicted that would happen. He says, all of this, all of these things, which you're looking at, this stonework and these votive gifts, the days will come, which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. I think we need to point out something here. Jesus was not saying that the old covenant was inherently sinful. Of course not. It was given by God. And it was given to them as a way to relate to him. But it had been corrupted over the centuries by men to be something it had never intended to be. And that included the temple itself. Remember what Jesus said when he chased out the money changers. You have made a place which was to be a house of prayer for all nations, a den of robbers. And it's not just the physical grounds of the temple. It's what was being taught in the temple and what the people had been led into. It was a system that was absolutely and utterly corrupt. And so Jesus says, God's going to do away with it. And he did. In 70 AD, not long after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Romans came under Titus Vespasian and they utterly destroyed the temple. And it has never been rebuilt. The temple was the pride and joy of the Jewish people. And yet the scripture says that God cannot be confined to a house made with human hands. God has not changed, though his temple was destroyed. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul taught, and therefore we teach here, that our bodies are the temple of the Lord, right? The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within every believer at the moment of conversion. And so we don't need a temple and we don't need sacrifices that took place in the temple either because the book of Hebrews says that Christ is the one and only sacrifice once for all. And so the old covenant came to an end just as Jesus had predicted. And I want to remind you in our fourth point that Jesus had predicted it. Look at verse 7. They question him, that is his disciples. We know from the other gospels specifically that the disciples who asked the questions were Peter, Andrew, James, and John, his very inner circle. They question him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to happen? And he says, see to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end does not follow immediately. Now, verse 7 introduces a 34-verse section here in Luke 21, sometimes called collectively as the apocalyptic discourse, which Jesus talks about the end of the world, and he talks about judgment. But two specific questions are asked by his disciples. When will these things be? Specifically, when will the temple be destroyed? But Jesus moves away from talking about the destruction of the temple and he talks about coming judgment, the end of the world. Now, anytime the disciples ask Jesus to give dates, he wouldn't do it. And he doesn't do it here. In fact, he sort of shifts attention away from a date because what these guys were thinking of is that when that happens, surely that's going to be when we get ours. And Jesus will be recognized as who he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He'll rule and reign from Jerusalem and will be his aides to camp. That's what they were still thinking. And yet Jesus has a very different plan. They certainly didn't see this so far 2,000 year period we call the age of grace or, or the age of the church. So he says 
Um, they ask him the second question, since he didn't really ask, answer the first one, what shall be the sign? And so I, I take it that the destruction of the temple is the sign of the beginning of the end. We've been living in the last days for over 2,000 years. And so it begins with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which I said happened in 70 AD. It ends with the second coming of Jesus and ends with his setting up his earthly kingdom. But for the time being, we now live in what theologians call the age of grace in which there's opportunity for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Aren't you glad of that? Remember, we talk about those two mountains. There's the first advent, the first coming of Jesus. And then there's the second coming of Jesus, a mountain in the distance. And we live in this valley of grace in between. And we don't know how far it is to that other mountain. We know we're a lot closer today than we were 2,000 years ago. But one day the Lord Jesus will come again and he will indeed rule and reign. But let's make some application in the time that we have left concerning these nine verses. First of all, we need to cultivate, develop, and maintain a Christian worldview of wealth and poverty. And so if you weren't here last Wednesday night, I encourage you to go back and watch uh, those last two sessions, Brother Jack, two weeks ago on thankfulness. And then last week I mentioned on contentment and Brother Lawrence is preaching this coming week on generosity, right? And so put those three things together and you have really the skeleton of all the Bible says about wealth and poverty. And I chose a text from Proverbs chapter 30 last week. It was the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. It was by an obscure guy you've never heard of named Agur. And he prayed this to God, give me neither poverty nor riches. And his thought process is if we have too much of what this world offers, our temptation is to forget God and be self-sufficient. He didn't want to be that. But if he has too little, he's going to be tempted to steal and to dishonor God to meet his needs. And so he asks, he doesn't say wealth is a sin, doesn't say poverty is a sin. He asked God that he would meet his needs, not give him too much and not give him too little. I think that's a great prayer for Christians to pray. And then make us content with what we have and then help us to be generous with the surplus and with all that we have. So that's in general what the Bible says about wealth and poverty. But specifically, Jesus is dealing with a poor widow woman. What does the Bible say? I gave you a few verses in general about what the Bible says about widows. Let's talk about widows here in First Baptist Keller. Did you know that there are about 150 widow women in our church? Many, many of them living on fixed income and many of them very small income. And so a few years ago, we developed a deacon ministry in which every widow in our church is assigned a deacon who helps to look out for her and check on her and uh, let us know if she has physical and financial needs. Um, Brother Lawrence and I, for many years, have had a desire to develop a widow's garden. And if you've driven by out here on uh, Pearl Street recently, you might have seen a, a large black tarp. And we're killing the grass because next spring, Lord willing, we're going to plant a widow's garden. And I know that seems so small in, in, in the bigger picture of today, but we believe that one of the things that we can do to help widow women is to help bless them with some fresh produce during the summer months. So if you're interested, 
you like gardening or you want to help widow women, you call Brother Lawrence or myself and we're going to have an organizational meeting for that uh, this winter. But let's talk about um, giving because that traditionally is how these verses are applied. There are some principles about Christian giving I think that we find here in the remarks of Jesus. Number one, first and foremost, don't draw attention to yourself when you give. Remember the verses that we just read, Matthew chapter 6, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. That's a very poetic way of saying, don't announce it. And I think if Jesus uh, were here in, the, in physical form in the modern world, he'd say, don't put it on Facebook. Don't tweet about it. Don't let everyone know every good deed that you've done. Trust that the Lord knows. If you do announce it, remember what he says, that is your reward. Pat on the back or a like on the internet. That's the only word you're going to get. But if you want heavenly and eternal rewards, do it anonymously. Don't draw attention to yourself. Which, of course, goes to the second point, which is give with the right motive. And I have been here 20 years. I've never once preached a sermon on tithing here. Nod your head because that's the truth. And I don't do it because that was the system that these Pharisees came out of and they tried to, and by the way, if you want to know the true total of all the tithes in the Old Testament, it adds up nearly 50%. You don't want to go back to that. What I aim at and what I believe the New Testament has us aim at is sanctification, which is simply growing more in love with Jesus over a lifetime. Jesus doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. And here's the principle I want to leave with you. If Jesus has your heart, he won't have to pry your money out of your hand. You'll give with an open hand and you'll give with a glad heart. So give with the right motive, love for the Lord and thankfulness for all that he's done for you and your family and your church. Here's another principle I think of giving in the, in the New Testament context. Don't judge a gift by the amount. That's what we do. Man looks on appearances, God judges the heart. Someone brings a large check and we say, oh wow, what a great and wonderful and generous gift. Well, here's a woman that gave the smallest amount possible and Jesus said she has given more than all the others. Jesus judged based on proportion. Now there are many verses in the Bible that, that speak of that's the way God judges, isn't it? To whom much is given, what? Much is required. And so we're all, the scripture says, going to die and stand before the Lord to be judged, whether good deeds are bad. But the way we're going to be judged is on an individual basis. That is, you don't have to worry about being judged on what the wealthiest person in the church did. And on the other hand, that person doesn't have to be judged on what you were given or anyone in between. God knows the heart and he's going to judge based on proportional giving. And that's the way we should as well. So don't be so impressed with large gifts and let God do the judging because we simply don't know. It's my favorite answer when people ask me, who's the greatest preacher alive today? Who's the most noble Christian that ever walked the planet? And my standard answer is, 
we don't know yet. Because we won't know until we get to heaven and the gifts are distributed and the Lord Jesus makes those announcements. It's not for us to do. We do what is right and leave the judgment to the Lord. But I think, let me conclude with this. I think the most important thing about giving is the most important thing about a right understanding of stewardship in general. And that is we must recognize the source of every gift and every blessing. You know that Jesus' brother James said it this way, every good and perfect gift cometh from where? The Father above, right? Let's go back to the Old Testament though. I had mentioned when David was putting together the offering um, for the temple. So go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. It's the very last chapter of 1 Chronicles. It's right before David's death. He's going to pass the baton of leadership to his son Solomon. God's already said, David, I'm not going to let you be the one to build the temple. That's going to be Solomon. But David was just overwhelmed that God would give him, even give him the privilege of raising the funds for it. So 1 Chronicles chapter 29 Verse 10, here is David's last recorded prayer before his death. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Who am I? Who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. Mark that last phrase in your Bible. If you have a pen or a marker, commit it to memory. Here's David who comes to the end of his life. God has blessed him beyond measure and he's just overcome with thankfulness. And all he can say to God is all that I have given to you, this great amount that's going to build a magnificent temple is really yours. We haven't given you anything that was yours already. So I think that's the principle of giving today. Whether you're giving to the poor, whether you're helping a widow, whether you're helping out a friend who's going through hard times, or whether you're giving systematically through your local church, recognize the source of all blessings is the Lord. And then don't give legalistically. Give from the heart. Give out of love and of thankfulness for the Lord's goodness. Let's pray and ask his help. Heavenly Father, this is a very familiar text, and we've all read it time and time again. And Father, I've heard many sermons in which um, people are, are put on a guilt trip, and this woman is, is elevated almost to deity. The truth is we know almost nothing about her. Jesus made a statement of fact that she had given more than the other, and that tells us that Jesus judges the heart and the amount of the gift is not nearly as important as the proportional sacrifice and the devotion. Father, we know from the scripture as a whole that you don't judge things like men tend to. 
by size or beauty. In fact, Lord, you don't value what we value. We, we value praise. We value attention. Lord, you, you value the hidden person of the heart. So, Father, that's really what sanctification is. It's that hidden person of the heart conforming more and more to the image of Jesus. Father, we know that your heart is towards the widows. You promise to protect them. You promise a curse on anyone who abuses them. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our efforts to love and and minister to the widows of this church. Father, I I pray you'd... uh, Give us wisdom how to do that in a way that would give you the glory. And Father, in our other giving, help us never to do it motivated by pride or any thought that we're buying your favor. Father, we know that salvation is by grace. It is a gift. It's not of works. Lord, we know that when you have your heart, when you have our heart, that heart becomes like the heart of Jesus. It becomes gracious and generous, outrageously so. So, Father, I pray as we grow as individual Christians and as we grow as a church family spiritually over the years, that you'd make us more like Jesus, that we would value people more than possessions, that we'd remember that all these material things one day are going to be burned up and go away, and that we are looking to heaven where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Father, help us to love the things of heaven more than the things of the earth. We want to give you, but only that which is coming from your hand. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.